0: The reasons people kill are no different in the 1500s than they are now. It is always the same. It's money or affluence or love or sex or betrayal. It's all the same.
1: That's Kate Winkler Dawson, and we talk about all that is wicked on this week's Crime Scene. The crimes, the criminals. Why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's crime scene. Welcome to the crime scene. I am Jim Harold and so glad to be with you once again. Now, I hear many people saying, oh, it's not like the good old days. You know, people were so much kinder and so much gentler back in the day. And I would say, well, sometimes that might be true, it's not always true. And that's uh, a case that we're going to talk about today, just such a case. We're going to talk about a new book out. It is called All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind. And our guest is just very, very accomplished, Kate Winkler Dawson. She is a seasoned documentary producer and crime historian whose work has appeared in The New York Times, WCBS News and ABC News Radio, along with PBS NewsHour and Nightline. She is the author of multiple very successful books, including American Sherlock, Murder, Forensics, and the Birth of American CSI. Also, she's the author of Death in the Air, the True Story of a Serial Killer. Also, The Great London Smog and the Strangling of a City. She is a very successful podcaster and in her spare time, I guess, I don't know how she has any, professor of journalism at the University of Texas at Austin. We're so glad to have her with us, Kate Winkler-Dawson. Welcome to the program to talk about this new book, All That Is Wicked.
0: Thanks, Jim, for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, now I was uh, reading that you prefer to focus on older cases. Why is that? What fascinates you by kind of looking at some of the coldest of cases and some of the oldest of cases?
0: Well, I love history and everything I do really <laughs> reflects that. Um, the intersection between history and crime has always been something that's interesting to me. And it's really relatively unexplored in the true crime genre. And, um, you know, I th- I think I respect people who tackle the contemporary cases um, which I know people probably don't think Jeffrey Dahmer is contemporary. It is to me. It's very contemporary. It's very recent. And uh, the Ted Bundys, and I, it's just not something I, I think I'll ever end up doing. I love the unknown cases. I love the weird, strange cases that we can learn from. I also will say I'm uncomfortable um, reporting on families of very recently killed people. So, you know, uh, it's difficult. I have spoken in my career in in documentaries and in and television news i have spoken to um victims families that were that were much more recent it makes me uncomfortable i'm always scared of re-traumatizing families and victims and and so you know my method is i still talk to families and relatives who are very passionate about these stories and know everything about them because it's part of their family history but there's enough distance where i feel comfortable not with accuracy because I am as as accurate as any journalist can be, but just more so making sure that they don't feel like I'm exploiting them in any way or or as I said, re-victimizing them.
1: That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that in the true crime genre, we need a dose of sensitivity about these things. Not that they're not covered. But I think we need to be sensitive of families and know that these are not characters in a play or a movie or a novel. These are real people. So I respect that very much. Thank you. So how do you go about, Now, I want to get into the subject of this book, but first, how do you delve into these super cold cases? I mean, we're talking at in, in, in times about things that are 50, 75, 100, 150 years ago. How do you approach that? Because many times you're dealing with things where at least the people who were existent during the happening are no longer with us. I mean, I know there's documentation and things, but how do you how do you do that?
0: Well, I mean, it's a challenge, and that's why I'm very particular about the stories I pick, both for the books and for the podcasts, because I have to have rich resources. I really want memoirs, I want letters, I want family stories, family papers, as well as the things you can expect, which would be trial transcripts that have been published, Lawyers' notes, you know, newspaper accounts. Newspaper accounts are sort of the very bottom of the list because if you think that we are accused as journalists of being inaccurate now in 2022, (laughs) you should have read some of the newspaper articles. Yellow journalism. (laughs) Well, and not even that. Just I mean, simply the the advent of the printing press. The struggle was real before that because you they were there were misspellings all over the place. You could barely read some of the print. I work in the 1700s an awful lot and then of course you have the language barrier, literally the language barrier where it's very hard for me to understand what they're even trying to attempt to say in the 1700s. So it's a high bar for me and for for especially for the books because they're so in depth. You know, they're 85, 90,000 words. So I have to have a lot of rich resources and then I have to have the families. The families are very important. Um, just to humanize the stories. I love going to the locations. I have to have accessible locations, like the book we're getting ready to talk about, you know, the family farm where all of this really started. The origin story of this story is the Scutt family farm. I was able to go there. It's still in the family. So those those things are all really important. And I would not write a book or do a podcast if I didn't have those types of sources. And a lot of times, frankly, the sources that I have are better than what people get for the con- contemporary sources because they're so well-documented in history because the stories I pick are, I think, are important. They're the, the first fingerprint case ever. Or, you know, in the case of Edward Ruloff, what we're getting ready to talk about, the avatar for exploring the criminal mind, You know, the, the person that started it all, our fascination with crime.
1: So many of us have heard the names uh, Dahmer, we've heard of Son of Sam, we've heard the litany, but many people have not heard about Edward Roloff. Uh, Who was he and why did you decide to kind of focus in and dedicate a major part of your working life to him and this book?
0: Edward Roloff, to me, was a, a singular character in history in that he was the Ted Bundy before Ted Bundy, one of the things that was so fascinating about Bundy was that he was this this guy next door. He was the guy that you would want your sister to date until you got to know him better. And of course, then his true intentions were revealed. But the, the friendly, affable psychopath is petrifying to people now. So in 19th century America, where a man's handshake is good enough for you to trust him, we're not like that now, but we were then, the idea that you have a man like Edward Ruloff who presents as this country gentleman who is unbelievably intelligent. There's no denying how intelligent he was, who could talk a good game, who was glib and and very um someone who was who was very relatable in a lot of ways, could then turn and kill four members of his own family, including his wife and child, is devastating for the people um in the nineteenth century and eighteen hundreds just didn't believe that somebody like that existed. So this began the exploration of how the intersection of what they presumed was evil, devil, could, be, uh, could intersect with someone of incredible intelligence who had it, all of this potential that was not only wasted, but then exploited to get him out of the noose.
1: Is that a stereotype that most serial killers are brilliant, or is it just something like the general populace? Some people are brilliant and some are decidedly not brilliant. Uh, Is it true that these serial killers tend to be smarter than the average bear?
0: (laughs) I think the ones we read about and are interested in are. But listen, if the majority of people who who fit into the profile of, of a serial killer, and so you know, our idea in our society of a serial killer is a Ted Bundy or an Edmund Kemper or a Zodiac or any of these guys, BTK, um, the evil genius. But really, a serial killer, the definition is someone who kills three or more people with extended periods of cooling off in between. So gang members are considered serial killers. People who kill sporadically are considered serial killers. So, no, the majority of serial killers are not highly intelligent. If you're talking about people who we consider to be serial killers, most have what we would say is the psychopathy, you know, antisocial personality disorder of some type, that male population, general population, that that's two percent or less, but 60 to 70% of the male general population in prison has psychopathy. So we're talking about people who are many times low functioning who get caught, the disorganized criminal. So we, I, you know, I would I would never define Edward Ruloff as a criminal mastermind, nor would I say Ted Bundy in particular was a criminal mastermind. I think that these were people who were in incredibly intelligent and happened to also be criminals.
1: In terms of Ruloff, what was his background? Because we always look back at the background. What, what could have spurred this person on to do these heinous things? So what were his beginnings?
0: Well, he was born in Canada. And of course... <laughs> he he lied from the very beginning, from when he met the Scott family in upstate New York in the 1840s. He lied from the beginning. He said he was from Germany and he wasn't. He's from Canada. His father was a farmer and his mother was incredibly bright, not formally educated, but somebody who really valued academics. And so she encouraged all three of her sons to read a lot. And I think that Edward's personality was um he was an introvert even though he could be charming when forced to be charming he was an introvert he liked working on his own and so i think he was quite isolated he didn't have many friends growing up none of this falls into what we think of somebody who goes on to kill a lot of people um, into that sort of normal background. You know, I just interviewed Ann Burgess, who was one of the original mind hunters. She was the forensic nurse who went to the FBI, um, the behavioral science unit at the FBI and uh, in the 1970s and began interviewing some of these serial killers. And she said just about every person she's interviewed has had some terrible something in their background. And Edward Ruloff had some quirky things that would happen to him, but what began to unravel for him is his focus on uh, studies and on languages and and studying philosophy really pointed him towards being in academia. And that's what he wanted. That was his focus. And that's part of psychopathy is this focus that you can't break away from. And when he was denied at age 18 by his uncle to go to get a formal education at a university, which had always been his dream and the dream of his mother, too, that was a trigger for him, where things just started to fall apart. So it wasn't necessarily a violent incident, although, you know, in the future, all, he and his two brothers had all had violent incidences happen. You know, there was not that that we know of that typical abuse or witnessing something traumatic or or something happening that we that we associate with a lot of killers that we know of now. So
1: is the thought potentially that he was so depressed by this uh, idea of working in academia that didn't work out for him, that he was mad at the world, so he was going to turn around and kill his family?
0: Less mad, more entitled. Hmm. And entitlement, as we know in the news now, is a very powerful thing. So when he felt entitled, meaning this is somebody who, who felt like he was incredibly intelligent, you know, in, in one instance, after two murders, he felt like he claims that he <laughs> had intended to take his own life and then stopped and said, no, I am too important to the world. It I would deprive the world of me and my ideas. I mean, can you imagine saying that aloud to anyone, <laughs> especially yourself? Wow. I, mean, I don't know if I would ever say that. So I think that, that when you're thinking about that kind of a personality, when his one chance when his uncle, who holds the purse strings to his family because his father had died and his mother had very little control over their finances, when his uncle denied him of the thing that he was certain he was destined to do, which was be a college professor, and he had the acumen to do. When it is denying him, his sense of entitlement, I think took over and his ego took over. And and often we find people with psychopathy, I thought this was strange. I thought they were all narcissists, but they aren't. There are people who have incredible insecurities. And Edward Ruloff often acted based on insecurities and fear and trying to remove obstacles in this life that has been his lifelong focus. You know, he he had said, this is what I wanted since I was a child. I wanted to be in academia. I wanted to study languages. And that focus never changed. The problem is, in the mind of somebody with psychopathy, if that focus doesn't change and you are in the way of that focus, it is a big problem. And they have no ability to have remorse or empathy for you. And they will remove you, either through destroying you. Women often who you know will destroy you financially, or men who can do it through violence, or both. So there, there's a lot of complications. I do think that that hubris and certainly entitlement were the things that, that fouled his own nest. And this
1: is something that I'd be interested in your uh, your answer, not only in regard to Ruloff specifically, but in general. Now, you have the idea of mental illness, psychopaths, those types of things, and certainly I think anybody who is reasonable thinks that many times in these cases, this is a huge element. I mean, I can't think, for example, Dahmer. If anybody's seen any of that, that series on Netflix, it's just so disturbing, just so disturbing the things that he was capable of. On the other hand, people still, to this day, talk about the concept of evil and that many people feel evil is real. I've even spoken to law enforcement people who say, yes, there's an element of mental illness, but there's also an element of evil. And I've heard some people speculate it's like a Venn diagram and there's an overlap. Specifically about Ruloff, and then in general, what are your thoughts on that? Is evil real, or are we simply dealing with insane people?
0: Well, I mean, you know, insanity is a a legal definition, not a medical definition. So, when we, if we set aside the idea of insanity, you know, there's obviously a big difference between mental illness and a personality disorder. And we also know that people don't kill because they have mental illness or personality disorders. They make choices. And, um, you know, in Ruloff's case, it's impossible to know if he had psychopathy, antisocial personality disorder, or, or any kind of disorder. I know that the checklist, which is Hare's checklist, Everything on the checklist, he scores a a three based on everything I know from him. And the forensic psychiatrists I interviewed interviewed for the book agree that this is someone who pretty clearly had psychopathy. So is someone evil? No. I've been asked that many times. Was Ruloff evil? No. Did he do things that were evil? Yes, absolutely. Um, But, you know, his definition of evil is different than my definition. And what's so interesting is I spoke to Um, a couple of different psychiatrists who said the same thing, which is, I said, you know, I I don't understand serial killers and Ruloff and, you know, these different guys who, and women, who have no morals. They seemingly have no ethics and no morals. And they said, that's not right. Of course they have morals and they have ethics. They are not your morals and ethics. They are in their heads, their morals and ethics. They have lines that they have drawn And they don't want to cross those lines. And it's not what we as a society agree on is a moral that we value, but it is what they value. So I'll give you an example. Um, My first book, which is Death in the Air, was based on John Reginald Christie, who was a serial killer in London in the 1950s. Christie had killed women and put them in his garden, put them in the walls of his house. He killed his wife and put her under the floorboards of their parlor. But when he went on the run, so he didn't value women at all. But when he went on the run, finally, he had a dog who was this nasty little old terrier type dog, wiry dog. And the dog was decrepit and Christy knew he couldn't survive without Christy being there, taking care of him. So he took what little money he had and went to the vet and had the dog put down out of compassion. That was his line. That was his moral. And So, you know, when I think about that and I think about true evil, no, I don't believe people are truly evil. I think they can do very evil things. I think everybody has the capability to kill under certain circumstances. If you threatened my kids and I felt like their lives were in danger, I would kill you in a second. I wouldn't even think about it. Sure, Those are my ethics. Those are my morals and what I stand for. So I do think, though, that there are people who are predisposed. I think genetics can play into it. Certainly, um, what what I have, my understanding from experts, particularly I've spoken to experts in domestic violence, is that oftentimes you have somebody who might have a mental illness or a, a personality disorder or just a difficult background, and they will operate fine. They will be high-functioning, and then there's a trigger, and the trigger is what happens. It's not the mental illness, it's the trigger that happens. And, you know, with Ruloff, I think there were several triggers. I think when he poisoned his sister-in-law and her daughter, I think the trigger was he felt absolutely um, absolutely insulted by his brother-in-law's protection of of this man who he thought his wife was sleeping with. And so he felt betrayed by his brother-in-law. And that's what made him kind of seek revenge. And, you know, with his wife and child, he felt like he was going to um, lose, you know, the 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 future he had. He was going to start this future finally. And that was a trigger, that fight. So there are things that we see repeating over hundreds of years. You know, in my podcast with Paul Holes, I tell him all the time that the, the reasons people kill are no different in the 1500s than they are now. It is always the same. It's money or affluence or love or sex or betrayal it's all the same it's just sort of in you know in different um lenses we see them through different lenses as as our lives go on
1: the book is all that is wicked a gilded age story of murder and the race to decode the criminal mind our guest is the author kate winkler dawson she's also a very successful podcaster as well and we'll be back right after this thanks for listening to jim harold's crime scene we're so glad to be back Please make sure to follow the show in the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. Also, please share the show with your friends who are fascinated by true crime the way we are. Maybe even text them a link to this episode. Finally, be sure to rate and review the show in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for your help and for listening. Be careful out there. And now back to Jim Harold's Crime Scene. We're back on the crime scene, and we are so glad to have with us Kate Winkler Dawson. She is a crime historian, a very successful author, and the host of the hip podcasts, Tenfold More Wicked and Wicked Words. And today we're talking about her most recent book, All That is Wicked, a Gilded Age story of murder and the race to decode the criminal mind. Now, as I understand it, this particular case was a little bit of a jumping off point for some of the sciences that are used today to crack the cases of serial killers. I mean, this was an early iteration, but they tried to be as scientific as they could, didn't they?
0: Yeah, the the I'm sure your listeners have heard of phrenology. Yes, there was some phrenology at use, and I, it's ironic that Ruloff was he considered himself an expert on phrenology and actually offered lectures on phrenology. Um, you know, phrenology was used, but with the brain in this case. So it's a bumpy road. The bumpy, yeah, actually, <laughs> yes. And what what was interesting about Ruloff was that this was a this was once a book idea that was then turned into a podcast and then. Back into a book. And the reason that I I turned it into the book again is that I was able to focus in on these moments for over about a six month period when Ruloff is shackled to the floor of a a jail awaiting execution, maybe. And there is a a group of men who walk through and ask him all sorts of questions. And they're from different disciplines and they're all trying to get at the same thing, which was number one, is this person really a genius? Number two, does the theory he claim he has about languages actually mean something? Is it meaningful to our world enough that we should save his life? And number three, is he insane? Is he crazy? And they all walked away with different opinions based on the questions that they asked, but more importantly, based on how he reacted to them, based on what he knew they wanted from him. So he was this master manipulator. When he finally died, and I won't say how, but when he finally died, his brain was sold ultimately to a neurologist, a very famous neurologist. And the neurologist had a hunch about the criminal mind. He believed that everybody was born with the same type of brain, nice, clean, pretty brain. And that if you decided to break the law, that a mark would go on your brain like a black mark. There was a really big belief that criminals had different brains than people of color who had different brains than women and then mentally ill. But the best and the biggest and the most wonderful brains, perfectly structured, belonged to, you could guess, white men who were affluent, who, you know, were morally upright. And when Ruloff's brain was sold, he was the very first brain in the very first brain collection in the United States. And this was the beginning of neuroscience. It was the beginning of comparative anatomy, where they take Ruloff's brain and they compared him, which was a huge brain, top 2% now, of the heaviest and largest brains in the world. And aside from his size, which we know size doesn't matter when it comes to brains, aside from his size, structurally, he was very, very similar, almost identical, no black marks, like what the neurologist thought, almost identical to the brain of a a very, very intelligent, well-known philosopher, white philosopher. And those two brains were very similar to the brain of a woman, to the brain of a a black woman, and then to a brain of somebody who was mentally ill. So we are talking about, you know, a a scientific racism that has now been abolished through one survey of Ruloff's brain with several other brains right next to each other. So it was it was remarkable. So Ruloff wanted to make history with his ideas on languages. He wanted to make history. This was not the history that he thought he was going to make, certainly. He did not think his brain was going to be on display at Cornell University a hundred and something years later, and it is. So It was. it's interesting.
1: Now, you talk about uh, Ruloff uh, being able to talk his way out of any crime. What were some examples of his silver tongue? I mean, how could he masterfully manipulate people and, and slide out of things?
0: Well, I think the most famous one is the, when he essentially established a statute in law, a habeas corpus. So when his wife and his daughter disappeared, he said, he confessed eventually that they were at the bottom of Lake Cayuga and there was no proof of anything. There was, you know, he he had dumped their bodies. They dragged the lake. They couldn't find any of the bodies. So when he went on trial, he went on trial for murder or kidnapping. Those were the choices for the jury. And there simply wasn't enough evidence of murder. You know, you're not going to, even now, it's difficult to convict someone of murder when there's no body. Because what are you going to do if you put this person in jail for 25 years and then the wife walks in or the husband walks in? and there's been an injustice. So for Ruloff, that was his argument. There is no proof, habeas corpus, no proof of a no body, no crime. And he argued that. And so when he represented himself, which incidentally, so did Ted Bundy and several other serial killers, Atlanta child killer, you know, all of these people in court represented themselves. And sometimes it works out well, but most of the time it doesn't. And with Ruloff, it worked out very well because He argued to the jury. There's no body. I have no idea where Harriet and Priscilla went. And you can't convict me of that. But the jurors wanted to convict him of something. So he was convicted of kidnapping and he was sent to prison for 10 years. And it was the most productive, most valuable 10 years of his life. So in an odd way, I'm not sure if he would have come up with this, what he thought was a revolutionary theory. And I would have never known about him had this had not become this, like, incredible triumph for him in court. Yes, he went to prison for 10 years, but he did, he wasn't hanged. And that's what his fear was. And then when he does go to prison, he uses it in an incredible way to come up with this theory that then becomes very convincing to a lot of people. So his intelligence, and, you know, this went all the way to the state Supreme Court, and they acknowledged no body, no crime. and It had never been done before in the court of law in America. So... So it was pretty remarkable. He was very, very bright. He studied with a law clerk when he was, as a law clerk, when he was very young and um, when he was in Canada still. So it obviously, uh, it obviously uh, really aided him in certain situations.
1: Why was he, as I understand it, he was very much like the cause celeb, uh, very much in the headlines. People followed this story and so forth. And then it just dropped off the map. Why did it drop off the map?
0: Well, think of all the other killers that came from <laughs> between it's the so 18, 18, Boy, we, we have a long list.
1: But I mean, you have somebody like Jack the Ripper that didn't drop off the map. I mean, that's uh, that's an outlier, but you get my point.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. And and I, there are some remarkable killers who we don't know very much about. I mean, there's one in Austin, Texas, you know, the, the midnight assassin, the servant girl annihilator. Well, Jack the Ripper, you're right, is an outlier. And
1: Torso murderer in Cleveland. I'm from the Cleveland area, and I find that a fascinating, devastatingly horrible, but fascinating case, the torso murderer.
0: I mean, you know, culturally, though, with what is fascinating about Jack the Ripper is just how how built into our society it is, and of course in England, too. That, you know, when you think of Jack the Ripper, it evokes these visions of gas lamp-lit streets and And fog, even though he never killed anybody during a foggy night. It was, uh, (laughs) they were all clear nights. So I think that there's the atmosphere. And Ruloff, I think, was, would have been, if his theory had turned out to be revolutionary, like the basis for artificial intelligence now or something like that, of course we would know about the story. But it was relatively solved. He was a man who had, I think, multiple types of personalities, not multiple personalities, but I think he had so many different sides, almost like a Jekyll and Hyde. so I think that while he was interesting, and for me, of course, very fascinating, and, and now people know a lot more about him... There are so many other killers to come. It's hard to keep up. I mean, you have these Israel Keys, who really was a criminal mastermind, and the Ted Bundys and the and the really depraved uh, Dalmers and Edmund Kempers and then real mysteries like the Zodiac killer. So I think that the list keeps growing and people like Ruloff keep being pushed down um, into history. And that is my job. That's what I come up with, Jim. That's like the whole point of doing my books and my podcasts is there are these people in history that we don't even know about. Like I was interviewed yesterday about Jeffrey McDonald. So he was the Green Green Beret killer. And there are a lot of people who are huge true crime buffs who don't know anything about him or they know, well, he was convicted of killing his wife and kids, but they don't know the details behind it and why the case was significant. And it was a significant case. So I feel like that's sort of my job with the books and with the podcasts, is to dig these cases up and say see, things are not that different, and this is what we can learn, and this is what they learned then. And it's great to see how we can unravel history, the history of forensics, the history of psychiatry, and and just the history of America and around the world, and and how all of these things came into play. You know, Jeffrey McDonald happened in 1970. And this is when Manson, around the time yep. of the Manson murders, yep. this is when there were huge conflicts between the so-called hippies, acid takers, and the police. And Jeffrey McDonald played on that, you know, and and tried to set up the crime scene. So it's important to have a historical context. I don't think we get a lot of that sometimes with true crime stories in history. I think it's just sort of like, yeah, this happened. This guy uh, was a Looney Tune, and he killed his wife and two kids. There's a lot more than that that happened.
1: I think back to uh, probably 15 years ago by now when Patricia Cornwell did her big uh, Jack the Ripper book. And I think, spoiler alert, uh, I think she said she felt it was the artist Walter Sickert. But the the point being, do you ever go back to any of these cases, and maybe this happens all the time, where – You've got access to the same information as everybody else. It's been out there for a long, long time. But you put it together differently and you think you discover something about the crime or the criminal that everyone else has missed.
0: You know, I don't do that. And that probably is a super boring answer. No. And the reason I don't is I, I like to create new history and, you know, kind of be the basis for everybody else wanting to explore these stories. So my goal is to not go over major cases. Paul and I, on Buried Bones, talk about the Lindbergh kidnapping, which most people kind of vaguely understand, but I don't know if they know the details.
1: And the fact it was so huge because Lindbergh was like Elvis, the Beatles, Michael Jackson, Frank Sinatra put together. I mean, he was the man. Yeah, in a plane. (laughs) He was the man, the man of the hour.
0: And, And people know it. They understand it. They, you know, vaguely, you know, a little boy was kidnapped and he ended up killed. But a lot of people don't know the details. So those are the most well-known cases. It's there are cases that are sort of like, yeah, I vaguely remember that. And then you might be reminded. And actually, what's surprising is Paul on <laughs> Buried Bones, he'll even say that this is an expert in forensics and investigation. And he'll go, yeah, I, I kind of remember the Lindbergh case, but I don't know. <laughs> you need to tell me a lot more about it. And I enjoy that. I am not somebody who I think is going to explore Jack the Ripper or Lizzie Borden, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think there are people who, there's always room for scholarship on, new scholarship on stories like that. I will say I have no interest in knowing who Jack the Ripper was or whether Lizzie Borden killed her you know her father and her stepmother. I don't want to know. I think that those are enduring mysteries that I enjoy thinking about and i like the theories but oh boy if there was some letter of lizzie borden confessing or some you know definitive dna linking and revealing who jack the ripper was it would be um disappointing to me i think at this point what about you do you want to know who jack the ripper was
1: I'd be interested. I mean, okay. I, 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 my my favorite case, and I hate to say favorite because it's horrible and insane, but being from Ohio, the torso killer, that's the one that's always fascinated me. I mean, there's theories and things and Elliot Ness is a part of that one. That's the one I'd like to know about. That's a very niche case because I'm from this area. But um, let me ask you this, and I, I want to be very careful how I say this because I don't want to say never because right now there could be somebody on the level of a Jeffrey Dahmer out there doing the kind of things that Dahmer did or fill in the blank, whoever, Kemper or Bundy or all the people that we've mentioned. There may be somebody out there doing that right now and being, quote, successful at it, doing to multiple people and not getting caught. But it strikes me with all the different technology and also the techniques and training that is in place It must be so much harder now to be a serial killer than it was 20 years ago because you've got video cameras everywhere. You've got DNA. You've got ostensibly better training, better techniques, profiling, all of these tools. How much more difficult is it today to do this quote successfully than it would have been 20, 30, 40, 100 years ago?
0: I think obviously it is much, much harder to be a serial killer today, although I do think that you have access to vulnerable people in a way that we did not hundreds of years ago. The internet is pretty incredible. And I think, you know, somebody who wants to exploit children, someone who wants to exploit sex workers, has ready access in an incredible way that that we didn't. And so I think while the ability to catch people has been greatly improved, you're right, by everything, CCTV, everything you could think of, I think that the access that people have to people where you can ask someone to show up at your hotel room and seemingly do it in a way where it can't be traced, you don't have to now go out and be in a car and be spotted by other people to pick up someone to then, you know, kill they can come to the hotel room and when I talked to someone about the Long Island serial killer that was a big point was the danger now that some sex workers face because of that. And so I think that it's a difficult, you know, line and and I think that that a lot of cases that Paul and I talk about on the show and that I write about, about are so interesting because there is there are often no definitive answers from that time period. We can say this is probably what happened. Ruloff said he killed his wife and child. Is there physical proof? No, they never found the bodies. He could have been lying. I don't know why he would, but, you know, and it would be much easier now to locate someone. That being said, I do think there are many serial killers working right now who are killing multiple victims. And Ted Bundy, I think, grossly said it best, which is, you know, I'm sitting here in prison. Do you know how many people are out there who are smarter than I am who are getting away with this? And that was in the 70s. So I don't know. I I think that this is a that criminology and criminal profiling and forensics, these are all growing fields. Even now, every time we think that we have reached all the tools that we can use, there's more and more and more. You know, we used to think that fingerprinting was the gold standard. It's not. You know, DNA is not always the, the gold standard, too. Good old-fashioned police work often is the gold standard. So as we progress and as our technology increases and as investigators are trained more and more deeply, I hope that this is history teaches us how to prevent crimes, how victims can avoid being victims never to blame the victim but to just right. try to mitigate something that some of these guys do. So, I think it's all one big challenge that will never end. We're never going to be in a utopia where people are not being killed. The best we can do is continue to catch people as soon as possible and and also educate people on how to avoid this if possible.
1: Very well said. I was going to say Much the same thing, but not as eloquently. If we can (laughs) do these shows and one person locks a door that saves them from from something horrible and, again, not victim blaming, it makes it uh, all worthwhile. Well, it's been a great discussion. I hope that everybody interested in true crime history checks out All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal mind. Kate, where can people find this book? Where can they find all of your books? And where can they find your podcasts and everything else?
0: Well, um, I always, you know, promote a good local bookstore. So local bookstores, but anywhere you buy books is where my books are available. And the podcasts are all on the Exactly Right Network, which is the the, the Mothership is My Favorite murder. So uh, all three podcasts, Buried Bones, which is the one with Paul Holes, where we talk about forensic cases from history, and then Wicked Words, where I interview people who are journalists on their best true crime stories, and then Tenfold More Wicked, which is a documentary-type series with lots of great music and soundscape and stuff about one crime over six episodes. So those are all on Apple Podcasts, everywhere you can think of that you would you would be able to get a podcast.
1: Be sure to take a listen. Kate, thank you so much for joining us and spending time talking about all that is wicked. Thank
0: you. I appreciate it.
1: And thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it. Please follow or subscribe now that we're getting this show going again after all these years. I hope that you enjoyed it. We'll be back next time with another fascinating guest. Talk to you next time. And of course, be careful out there. Bye bye, everybody.